I grew up in a very uh, North Indian feudal kind of household, and when seeing that the meaning, the very skewed meaning of peace is basically giving up on your rights. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. My name is Ankita Anand. I'm an investigative journalist, also a part-time editor with Unbiased the News. My focus is on a lot of social justice reporting, including corruption, environment, labor rights, indigenous communities, land rights. I do a lot of rural reporting, but also cross-border collaborations when I'm reporting, and I like to mix up a lot of genres and formats when working with people. The fact that I started out professionally being an activist has a lot to do with my gender and having seen gender inequality around me in my own home. I remember things like my uncle was going to get married and I went with him for the shopping and uh, there's this big brand called Raymond's and I went with my uncle and he had to buy a tie and I loved writing, so I even filled up the feedback section, etc., about their collection of ties and <laughs> what a wide variety they presented to their customers. And I came back home, but I also left my address because there was a section for it. I wasn't aware of enough about my privacy rights, so I left my address and my phone number there. And then I got some kind of a card about their sale going on or something and the card was addressed to Mr. Ankita Anand and I felt like I don't know anyone. Ankita is not that unusual a name in India and I don't know of any guy who's named Ankita but they just assumed that you know they have to like anyone who's written or anyone who's come to their shop. So I didn't really know of words like feminism but I called them up, found their number. I was in the eighth grade, I called them up and I said, why are you assuming that everyone is a man and I'm not a guy and you you should have written MS and not MR. So there was this kind of very low tolerance or zero tolerance towards injustice. And I was making do with these little tools like letters to the editor and phone calls to <laughs> tie shops that really shaped my desire to speak up. And like I said, it's always personal and not to let people get away with bad behavior. I felt like, I felt quite helpless a lot of times growing up because I felt I can't do, I can't get these men to change how they treat their partners or their mothers. But I felt like, okay, I will not be treated this way. And whenever I see things happening, I felt the urge to speak out and change that. Before coming to Delhi, I was in a small town uh, in the east of India, in the state of Jharkhand. I was in Rachi. And uh, it's not like there weren't economic differences there, 
uh, between people, but they weren't so vast. I had this pair of school shoes and I had a pair of shoes I could wear when I went out to any party or something. And then I saw this girl wearing her school shoes to a party and I thought, I felt bad that, okay, some people don't have an extra pair of shoes. But that was pretty much it, uh, at least in my circle. And then when I came to Delhi, I saw these, you know, skyscrapers and big cars and then all these people sleeping under the flyovers and uh, being underpaid, construction work going on all around and people living in really bad conditions. So I felt like this is a huge gap and I can't just be in a cocoon and write about very specific things that would probably be relevant to a very small part of the society I live in. And so I felt I want to do something that's more relevant to a greater section of society. And I told my teachers that this is what I'm feeling. Can you lead me to something, some group I can work with? And they told me about a human rights group, a voluntary group where everyone had their jobs, but they would get together and also pick up these issues, including uh, labor issues. And I joined the group. Uh, and that actually was the first lesson in investigating because they used to have these fact findings where some kind of human right violation would be reported and we would go there as a team like any investigator they would cross check everything talk to a lot of people so that was I didn't realize that this is kind of going to be a part of my life later I really uh, liked the fact that I could get so angry about so many things. Now I try to work through it because not great for your mental health over a long period of time. But I felt like whatever I was fearful of changed when I started getting angry because my anger over being ill-treated or anyone around me being ill-treated was bigger and sharper and cut through the fear that I would feel of what the repercussions would be if I act or say something. I didn't have to fight fear because anger was already doing it for me. The investigation bit, I think, happened very uh, organically when Actually, first only still submitting essays to this magazine that I first began writing for. And then the editor said, why don't you also do a report for us? And my first long form report was on uh, Africans living in Delhi. And there was there were kind of easy targets for the police in some ways because they had been stereotyped as people who engage in drugs and prostitution and all these and politicians were kind of playing on those stereotypes to keep targeting these groups again and again. Uh, and I felt like this is not just a simple story of how do you like living here, but there's so much more to be revealed. So we don't want to be interviewed by you. So I felt like even a simple thing where people feel like there is no investigation to be done because we already know how they are actually involves an investigation because... 
there are always layers to the human experience and to human behavior. I now try to keep pockets of activism different in my work. Like if I'm invited to do a street theater workshop or a poetry workshop uh, or a gender training, gender sensitization workshop, I would I feel like whatever is the activist inclination in me can be spent there and then I can be more separate in my journalism. I mean, I'm extremely aware that I was an activist for so many years. So now I feel a bit wary of that same kind of identity coming in when I do my journalism. So I try to separate the two this way. Uh, being curious is definitely something that goes a long way in making a good investigator because then uh, one is actually finding things rather than just already stating what they have decided upon. Being a listener, being compassionate, being respectful of people's time and boundaries. Mostly people like to talk and they like to uh, like the stories to be told. So many nice people have asked me, you are doing this uh, and we have been suffering all this for so many years. What will we get talking to you? Why should we talk to you? And I have to say that, you know, I don't actually know. I'm writing this, I'm publishing this. I hope more people get to know about this. I hope uh, there is pressure in the long term, but I actually cannot promise a certain result that will come out of this investigation. But I'm really interested in knowing your story. I think more people uh, should know your story because they don't know about it. Once they feel like, you know, they would be heard respectfully and patiently and not misquoted or misreported, mostly people are happy to talk is what I have found in my experience. The kind of personality you end up having with these qualities often uh, is not seen as the personality of an investigator, as someone who's, you know, snappily asking questions one after the other. And this is, you know, in a very hardcore way, it's just really focused on the investigation and uh, doesn't get tearful hearing people's stories. I mean, you can't, you can't get soft doing these things. That has been the stereotype of an investigator. Uh, so I feel like having this kind of, like being being an introverted person or really enjoying listening has actually also helped me because people don't see me often as someone who has come to do harm. I think these were the qualities I have. And of course, I'm I'm learning a lot of other skills and qualities, but I feel like uh, this kind of admitting my humanity and acknowledging the others has really helped me with all the investigations I've done so far. I think one thing which I really, which really acts in my advantage is time. I often travel with just a one-way ticket and don't already decide my return. 
I, I, when I meet people, I say, okay, tell me what time is good for you. And they will say, when do you have to go back? And I would say, you tell me how much time you have because I have time. And they would take me to all sorts of things to, you know, to their family and some wedding is happening and okay, we want to come to this wedding, you could meet people there. And so many things could be relevant for the story. So many things could actually lead to other stories. Uh, so that is something I really enjoy to go with a list of people I want to talk to, to go with these 10 questions I definitely want to ask, but otherwise be really open to the shape it is taking to the answers that are coming up to the questions I did not think of. So I would really, I would have these questions, but I would really just listen to stories. And then once they're done speaking, then I would say, okay, three new questions have just come up on the basis of what this person said. Uh, so now I would ask those three questions and then eventually also the questions I went with. I had actually uh, gone to the state where there's a big section of indigenous population and I was supposed to do a story on land grab and I was tracing that story. And then this person who was my local contact said that actually, you know, we already have all these stories of the exploitation of indigenous land and violation of forest rights. But there are also these stories of resistance and resilience, innovation that you should look at. And there are these people who actually managed to save their village in the sense that their village was being turned into a municipality, which means you have to pay higher taxes, you lose control and rights over your land. But if it's a village, it's much simpler. So how these people then kept fighting and they used their rights, their spe the special rights indigenous people have over forest land to keep pushing out the government's agenda. In the end of it, these villagers managed to push out this forced transformation that, that was actually costing them rather than making anything better. I could do the story because I didn't feel like I have to show them only in a certain light and as victims. And I, I had time and I was willing to travel. The community opened up to me more. I also did a lot of culture stories because there was a very, they felt there has been a very uh, simplistic representation of their culture uh, because they don't follow a lot of what goes on in cities. So the fact of spending so much time writing about their lives other than as uh, people who are victims, but as people who are these safeguards of forests, how, how a lot of their cultural traditions actually make so much sense and also end up saving the environment, also end up uh, protecting women's rights. That kind of open listening and uh, spending time also helped me gain the community's trust and have access to more stories later. I actually really like the concept of the Forbidden Stories project. Uh, I feel like if we do more and more of that, that is ensuring a safety net for journalists across the world to say that killing this journalist or threatening this journalist and making them stop their work is not actually going to 
uh, stop the investigation they were doing because there's a bunch of us who are going to follow up on the reporting that they did the project started because a journalist who was doing an investigation got killed and then a bunch of journalists decided that they would carry forward her investigation uh, not letting the idea or the findings die with her so that the people who have who, who did uh, assassinate her know that you cannot kill an idea or an investigation by killing a person and that actually something like that actually ensures the safety of journalists also uh, you know people who do cross border investigations or when a team is working on an investigation i'm inspired by them because then you are spreading out like everyone is taking a tiny bit of risk rather than one person taking a big amount of risk upon themselves and then getting killed in the process or getting uh, injured to the extent that they can't carry on the investigation i'm also inspired because they made me uh, rethink some of my own methods i felt like i'm more comfortable working alone i don't know if it's a good idea uh, to work in a bunch what if i'm not compatible with these people they have very different ethics but these examples and then also working with tactical tech and uh, seeing the benefits of collaboration i think i uh, opened up more and more or looking at host writer where they were encouraging collaborations and i felt like maybe this is not such a bad thing and maybe i'm actually carrying a lot of risks and a lot of pressure to do everything on my own and getting disappointed also because i'm taking up these ambitious projects and it just spirals out of control and I've, i'm leaving them half done so it's better to have another partner so all these all these groups and projects that stressed a lot on collaboration made me rethink my own preference uh, to working in solitude cross border collaborations are done in different ways when we are doing an investigation that concerns more than one country or the relationships between different countries some of the relationships up front in government documents and some of the relationships going on in kind of an underhand way uh, and that's when you decide that it would be good to collaborate with someone from that region because i don't know that place or the details well enough or if i just try to report something very quickly there there are certain dangers to parachuting that i would be misreporting and i can't actually learn a whole lot about a country in 2 3 days the problems are uh, the risk the slight risk you take in identifying a partner if you don't already have some kind of a colleague you're comfortable with or some journalist you've worked with in the past like i have had an experience where someone just joined our team and he actually did no work uh, in the team at all and because this is uh, it was not things were not entirely in our control we are also supported being supported by other groups and we are accountable to them in terms of what are what is the work we are doing so situations situations like this can become stressful but i have done so many collaborations with people in different countries and i think the risks uh, are fewer and the benefits are much more you can't know everyone you can't know a person really well on the first date kind of a thing but then you don't take up something that is going to take maybe like one year or two years do something really small with them 
So these are all, they are not guarantees against problems, but the, there are these ways of minimizing the risks. Now there are a lot of platforms that are uh, quite dedicated to collaborations like Hostwriter, journalismfund.eu, Project Facet, Clean Energy Wire. They're actually putting out grants, grant opportunities saying we are going to fund groups or we are going to fund a team that consists of a minimum of two members. So they are so many so many of these organizations have realized the importance of collaborations even in things like workshops or trainings and sometimes people don't value these enough and so much of it is just offered for free so i think uh, if we keep an open mind and just meet more people, more journalists. Like I know so many journalists who are full-time staffers don't actually get time to go for trainings and fellowships. But if as a freelancer, one does have the time to be really open to things and also really uh, knowing about your own skills and interests well. Like I know so many times people don't go to something even though they want to because they feel they're not qualified. Uh, so I keep telling them that if you are interested, you apply anyway, and maybe they will, uh, you know, they will consider you because they like your work in another area. Like when I first started doing climate reporting, there was this fellowship that I applied for. Till then, I had reported on the environment, but I had not done dedicated climate reporting. And I mentioned it in my application that this is something I've not done, but this is what I have done. And these are the work samples. And... Uh, they accepted it and I got a chance to do more climate reporting, meet other people who are doing that. It's looking at your own skills from different perspectives that, you know, environment, climate, they're related. The grants and fellowships that I get definitely have a huge impact on the work that I do as a freelancer in India where a big number of media organizations actually pay, most of them pay very badly and it's not uh, easy to sustain yourself and pay your rent and your bills. I actually feel guilt because I talk to all these people and I don't know if I'm actually able to finish all these additional stories. Maybe a couple I'm able to do, but I may not have uh, the sustainability to do these additional five stories that I heard about or I looked at when I went there because there is this pressure on me, me to get the next chunk of money to take me through the next three or four months. So that definitely uh, impacts my work and also my own satisfaction with uh, the work that I'm doing. There's also a good number of people wanting to do it but do not have the resources or who are really passionate about investigations and they are just sent out into the field uh, exploiting that passion without any security, safety, anyone looking out for them. Enough follow-ups are happening. If I, if I present a new idea, it's much more exciting for a grant giver. But if I say I want to go back to the same place, it may be seen as, oh, but this is already done. What is the new thing that you are offering? While as investigators, we may feel more satisfied going back to the same place and measuring impact or feeling more 
also more connected to our work. Uh, and we will also then be able to get more expertise uh, on that subject, on that area, if more of such follow-ups are supported. I'm not saying it's not happening, but I think it's not happening enough, including in my own life. The initial enthusiasm of having created some impact wears off, and I feel like I would like to see if it's still there or if it, if the impact has now worn off and I need to do another round of investigation there. A lot of the pitches that I send out end up with end up having no response. It's easier to get rejections so that you know you can move on. But if you are not getting an answer, uh, it's hard to know if you should wait for a while or if you should reach out to another publication. Uh, I know some investigators pitch simultaneously to four or five editors. As an editor, I just we published the story by a journalist who got it rejected 40 times before uh, we approved it and we chose it. Tough and uh, the whole pitching process, which is why then again, it's easier to do a longer project and get a grant or a fellowship rather than just one-on-one -on -one assignment because then the hustling is just relentless. As, a, as an investigator, if you if you could just be focused and relaxed that, okay, I've got this thing taken care of, I've got my income taken care of, and for this amount of time, I'm just going to focus on this, it could become really easier. Uh, last year, I got a grant to do a a project which I had been pitching for definitely not 40 times, but I had been pitching over five years. It's the story of this woman who uh, who's unlettered, who's old, she's single, uh, her husband died when she was quite young, and she's helping all these women fight domestic violence. She's encouraging them to go to court. She cannot read and write, but she has a good uh, grasp of the court processes, what your rights are as a woman, what 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 you can ask for as a, a part of your husband's property. So she has all this knowledge and she has a lot of compassion to the extent that her phone number is written on the wall of her house outside and people actually call her even at 2 a.m. So this was the story that he was pitching. I don't know if it didn't, uh, if it didn't catch attention because solutions is still not that big a thing in India. It's it, it's picking up solutions journalism, but it's still not that big. Or because domestic violence is such a rampant issue in India that something related to it does not seem very new. At Unbiased the News, what we are trying to do is rather than looking for that perfect pitch, uh, that kind of flawless articulation, we are really trying to look at, is there a story there that we would love to tell? Work actually in collaboration with the journalists rather than just have them submit and then do bits of proofing here and there and publish. So that's, that's also a process that has uh, allowed us to have more time with the journalist and have discussions with them, ask them to get something. If they can't get something, uh, we will get it for them and we, we will interview a couple of people and add to the story because we feel like that's a great story that should be told and if someone and whatever we can assist with 
we are there to help with that because we feel like these are also barriers uh, to publishing. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskander, Laura Ranka, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.